Advent gives us an opportunity to <clears throat> prepare ourselves for the coming of the Lord. We desire to be a people prepared for the Lord's arrival. And we're looking through Luke chapter 1 during this Advent season for guidance and sustenance for that uh, preparation. In, in the chapter, God is preparing his people for the Lord's first coming at what we would come to call Christmas. We've met Zechariah, uh, the priest, and his formerly barren wife, Elizabeth, now carrying the prophet of God's anointed, John, who would be called the, the Baptist or the baptizer. We've met Mary, a young uh, virgin betrothed to a man from Nazareth, now miraculously with child from the Holy Spirit. Jesus, God incarnate, growing in her womb. This is the faithful remnant, or a glimpse of the faithful remnant of God's people, and he is preparing them for his gracious visitation of his people in time and space. And so we're seeing the the ground churning and the, the movement of God underway in these stories. And through these stories, we've seen some ways that perhaps God intends to prepare our hearts to receive him yet again. He intends to, to stoke our confidence in his faithfulness. What he has promised, he will fulfill. He intends to remind us of his unconquerable power toward us, that he promises to do the impossible on our behalf, and he will surely carry it out, even when his promises seem distant and unlikely. And he intends to reassure us that just as Mary found favor with God and was graced by God's divine presence, so we, as his people through faith in Christ, are the perpetual objects of his unswerving favor and blessing, and the glad recipients of his faithful presence in our lives. These are some of the ways he's already shown us in these passages how he intends to strengthen our faith and to prepare us for his coming. And I trust that he'll continue to be gracious to us as we continue our study today, looking to verses 39 through 56, where two expectant mothers meet. And we listen in on their songs of praise to God. So look with me at verse 39 in Luke chapter 1. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. We're going to pause right there. In those days, that is the days shortly after she was visited by the angel Gabriel, which we read about last week. The verses we saw last week showed the angel Gabriel appearing to this young unmarried virgin Mary and prophesying that she would conceive a child by the Holy Spirit and that child would be the Son of God. And so she's been given this message, this pronouncement of what's to come. And in those days, Mary arose and went with haste 
into the hill country. It doesn't seem like she wasted any time. She wanted to go and see uh, this cousin of hers because the angel also told her, your relative Elizabeth uh, in her old age is also uh, conceived and will bear a son. And so she has decided it's time to go and uh, be with her cousin Elizabeth and to sort of compare notes, I guess. Let's talk about this crazy experience that we've both had and, and consider together what God is doing. And so she went with haste. And so we were told when Gabriel visited Mary that it was in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And then we're told at the very end of this passage that Mary stays with Elizabeth for about three months. And that, that brings us to the threshold of the birth of John, which is what we'll talk about next week. So there can't be much time that has passed between the announcement that Gabriel has made to Mary and her trip, about a four-day journey, into an unnamed town in Judah where Zechariah and Elizabeth live. However, apparently, though much time hasn't passed, the miracle foretold by the, her angel visitor had come to pass. That is, she has by this time conceived, and the Son of God incarnate is growing in her womb. And we know that that's the case because of the next few verses. So look with me now at verse 41. I'm going to read down through verse 45. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary goes to see Elizabeth, and when she gets there and greets her, probably something like, Hi, Elizabeth. We don't have the quote there, but I doubt it's anything remarkable. It's just a greeting. But when the greeting reaches the ears of Elizabeth, who is carrying John, the forerunner, the, the announcer of the coming of the Christ, the baby leaps inside her womb. Why? I would suggest because of Luke 1.15. During the very first scene that we saw in this chapter, when that angel Gabriel had visited Zechariah, the priest, when he went into the temple to burn incense, the angel had said to Zechariah about the son that would be born to his wife Elizabeth, verse 15, he will be great before the Lord, he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So in verse 15, we've got this announcement, this prophecy, that John will be filled with the Spirit of God even while in his mother's womb. And here, when Mary enters the home of Elizabeth and greets her, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leaps. Why? Because the infant John, by virtue of the Holy Spirit, recognizes 
that he is in the presence of God's Son, and he is moved with joy. And we see that down in verse 44, when Elizabeth explains what happened. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. So here's an infant growing in the womb of his mother who is filled with the Holy Spirit such that he recognizes the presence of Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, and experiences joy and leaps inside his mother's womb. A secondary side note here, it's not the point of the passage, but it's worth observing. The Bible has no space for the idea that what's growing in the womb of a pregnant woman is a clump of cells or lifeless tissue, merely a product of conception. If what's growing inside Elizabeth can be filled with the Holy Spirit and can experience joy and leap in the presence of his Lord, it is obviously a living human being who is growing there. That's worth noting in a parenthetical side note. So John has noticed, recognized, filled with the Spirit that he's in the presence of the Lord, God incarnate, also in the womb of his mother, and he leaps for joy. And then the very next thing that happens after the baby has leaped is that Elizabeth herself, filled with the Spirit, pronounces God's blessing upon Mary. She exclaimed, verse 42, she exclaimed with a loud cry, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. It doesn't appear that Mary by this point has explained to Elizabeth what has happened. Hey, Elizabeth, I came to see you because crazy thing happened. I had a visit from an angel and he told me that I was going to conceive by the Holy Spirit and sure enough, I have now conceived, and so I thought I'd come to see you. None of that exposition is given. And in fact, Elizabeth says, as soon as your greeting reached my ears, the baby leaped for joy. And so she is now speaking clearly by supernatural revelation because of the Holy Spirit's filling. She is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she speaks better than she would automatically, naturally know. And she pronounces, she recognizes Mary is pregnant, she recognizes Mary is bearing the Son of God incarnate because she says, how could it be that the mother of my Lord has come to me? She recognizes who this is. How? Because of the Holy Spirit's presence. Because she has been filled with the Spirit and utters supernatural revelation. Blessed are you among women. Out of all women on the earth, you are blessed. And blessed is the fruit of your womb, the baby who's growing inside you. That word blessed there, I want to point this out because it's different than the word blessed that comes later. The word blessed here is the Greek eulageo, which has to do with God bestowing his grace, God pouring out his favor. So when she says, blessed are you among women, she's saying God has poured out his grace and favor upon you. And God is pouring out his grace and his favor upon the child growing inside your womb. Blessed are you. God's grace and favor are upon you. That's what she means by that. And then down in verse 45, she pronounces another blessing. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And that blessed is the Greek word 
makarios. And that word has to do with happiness, with well-being, with flourishing. It's the same word that appears over and over in the opening verses of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, what we call the Beatitudes, where Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are the meek. That's that word makarios, happy, flourishing, well are those who are poor, and who are meek, and who are making peace, and who are merciful. That's the message that begins the Sermon on the Mount, and this is the blessing that Elizabeth here pronounces upon Mary. Mary's happiness, Mary's well-being, Mary's flourishing is premised upon what? Blessed is she who believed. Her blessing, her happiness, her well-being is founded upon her faith. That's the way that it works in the economy of God's kingdom. Blessing comes by faith. The well-being and flourishing of a child of God comes by virtue of his trust in God. Because she believed there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her, she is therefore happy. She is therefore well. And so it is with you. Your happiness, your well-being is determined by your faith. Which is not to say that that means that everything will be easy. It's not to say that your path will always be smooth or that your life will be free of hardships, even persecutions. But rather, because I believe God's word is true, because I trust God's heart toward me is good, because I know God's power and providence is at work even in my darkest days, even so it is well with my soul. That's how we can proclaim that wellness, that flourishing, that inner well-being. It's not because circumstances are always easy and hunky-dory. It's because I am trusting in the heart and purposes of God. And when I rest in Him and His knowledge and His plans, even when I can't see what comes next, even when what I'm walking through right now feels like the valley of the shadow of death, I can still say, no matter what is going on, it is well with my soul. Why? Because we believe that there will be a fulfillment of what has been spoken by the Lord. This is the message for us in Mary's faith. The blessing of faith, the well-being and flourishing that comes by virtue of our trusting God to carry out his word. So, a few notes about what we've seen so far. We've seen the pre born infant John filled with the Holy Spirit, leaping with joy. We've seen the aging, expectant mother Elizabeth filled with the Holy Spirit and pronouncing divine blessing upon the virgin mother. And now, in the coming verses, we see the Virgin Mary burst forth into her own song of praise. But first, consider what has happened to her based on the words of the angel back in verse 35. The angel answered her the whole, when she said, how will this be since I have known no man? 
The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. So by this point, the Holy Spirit has come upon Mary, and the power of the Most High, that is God himself, has overshadowed her. And so here is a community of the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit bursting forth with praise for his lavish provision of grace and favor. What a scene to behold. Consider also that we observe in this scene, number one, the overshadowing presence of God Most High, the eternal divine Father. Number two, the physical presence of God incarnate in the womb, the eternal divine Son. And three, the manifest presence of God in joy and revelation, the eternal divine Spirit. Father, Son, Spirit. The eternal triune God present and praised in this simple meeting of two expectant mothers. Surely this is the glory and wonder of Christmas. Obviously recognizing that glory and wonder, Mary breaks out in song and gives us the poignant hymn of verses 46 through 55, the so-called magnificat, which is the first word of the song in the Latin translation of the scriptures. So let's read her song in its entirety, and then we'll consider it together. So look at, with me at verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This song is bursting with allusions and quotations of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Psalms and Proverbs are there. The prophets are there. The history books, like the book of Samuel, are there, reflected in this song of Mary. And we don't have the time to go through that and point out all of the allusions and and discuss what all of those things mean. But I would encourage you, if you're the the type to study and follow cross-references, this is worth your time. This is a good study. Read this passage with a a Bible that has cross-references in the margin and go and find all of those passages in the Old Testament that are alluded to in Mary's song. It is full and it is rich. And it tells us something about Mary. We don't have like really long 
beyond the sort of birth narrative and this portion of the story, once we start to center on Jesus in the Gospels, we don't read a whole bunch else about Mary. She's obviously there, and she shows up from time to time, but we don't get a whole lot about Mary. So it's good to glean what we can about this young woman. And we learn just in reading her song that she is well-versed in the scriptures. She's already shown herself to be a faithful disciple. After the angel's announcement and prophecy about what would happen, she said, I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. And now she reveals herself to be well-studied, well-versed in God's word. She shows us that she's been paying attention in Sunday school. When she is overcome with joy in the Holy Spirit and bursts forth in song, what comes out of her is the Bible. It's God's word. The songs and stories of God's people in the Old Testament flow naturally from her because she is clearly well-versed in God's word in the scriptures, which is also instructive for us in our prayer. If we would pray well, we should pray the Bible And if we will pray the Bible, we must know God's word. We must become ourselves students of it and be well-versed in how God has spoken and continues to speak in the pages of Scripture. So when we pray and when we burst forth in praise, what flows out is the word of God informing our own prayers and our own worship. And this is a good example that Mary sets for us. It also tells us, if you'll allow it, yes, Mark Lowry, Mary knew. You've heard the song. You might have seen the, 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 the meme of the, the old Batman comic where Robin is saying, Mary, did you know? And Batman slaps him and said, yes, she knew. Luke chapter 1. I don't know. If, if you haven't seen it, you should go look it up. It's pretty cute. Um, anyway, listen, I'm not nearly as down on that song as all the people on my Facebook and Twitter feeds are. It gets, it gets a bad rap, all right? I get that it's, it's rhetorical. These questions are making a point. They're not necessarily calling... Mary's uh, position or, or awareness into question. But it's clear that Mary is not at all blind to the identity of the son in her womb and the staggering implications of his presence in the world. And this song makes that very clear. I like the song. I'll listen to it, just so you know. The song of Mary here has two movements, verses 46 to 49, and then verses 50 to 55. So kind of two stanzas, if you will. Movement number one has to do with God's grace to Mary. That is personally. God's grace to her. Let's just walk through what she says here. My soul magnifies the Lord. I think immediately of Psalm 34, 3, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Think also of what is in the Old Testament probably the closest companion to Mary's song, 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah, who has been barren, God has opened her womb and granted to her her request of a son and she will give birth to Samuel, who will become a priest and indeed the last judge of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 2, Hannah gives us a beautiful song of praise. And you will find, if you read these side by side, there are a lot of parallels between Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2 and Mary's song here. And 1 Samuel 2, verse 1, Hannah said, My heart exalts in the Lord. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. 
That's important to note that she calls God her Savior because it tells us, it reminds us that Mary is a debtor to grace just as we are. Contrary to the Catholic notion of the immaculate conception, that is that Mary herself was without sin, Mary was a sinner, a fallen person just like we are, and she recognizes her need for God's grace, for his rescue. She understands that the work that God is unfolding in this coming is the work of salvation, her deliverance from sin and death. And that indeed echoes 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 1 again, where Hannah said, because I rejoice in your salvation, God visits and saves his people. She says, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Again, that Mary found favor, like Gabriel told her, doesn't mean that she earned his attention. It means that he has set his grace upon her. Because she is one of humble estate. She is of lowly estate. That is, she is unresourced, unprivileged, unlikely. And God has paid her mind. And that is what she marvels at here. God has seen me. God has looked upon the lowly, unprivileged state of his servant. And she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, as indeed we do. As this story is enshrined in the word of God and told over and over again, we, along with Mary, uh, along with Elizabeth, call Mary blessed. Makarios, happy, well, flourishing because of God's grace upon her. In sending his Messiah into the womb of the virgin, God has birthed something fundamentally new and lasting. When she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, that from now on signals something's changed. Something new is happening, namely the new age of the kingdom, the age of redemption, which is inaugurated at Christ's first coming and will be consummated at his second coming to be carried on in perpetuity forever. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. God is doing something new through Christ in this new era that he is bringing about. Verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. Again, God who is great and powerful and high and exalted has done great things for lowly, humble servants. And holy is his name. Yet another echo to Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, where Hannah says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And this is how the Lord's grace works for us as well. He who is mighty the great God of eternal self-existence, the creator and sustainer of the universe by whose breath the entire cosmos is sustained, 
looks upon you and me in our lowliness, in our comparative insignificance, and he takes notice. He takes thought for you. He does great things for you in working salvation from sin and death. He who is mighty has done great things for us. So that's the first movement of this song, and it's about God's grace to Mary. But now in verse 50, she starts to expand this outward. The second movement of this song is about God's grace to his people corporately. She's going beyond now, God has been good to me, and she starts to say, God has been good to his people. Look at verse 50. His mercy, which is what is contained in all of this visitation and this blessing and this, he has taken notice of me and my lowliness. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Psalm 103, verse 17 says, The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. So a clear allusion to that psalm. God's mercy, God's goodness, God's blessing is not just for me, says Mary, It's for all of those who fear him. Reminded of Peter's proclamation in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 and 35, about when he became aware that God's grace was bursting out of the national ethnic boundaries of Israel and the Jewish people, and even welcoming in Gentiles. And he said, now I see and know that God shows no partiality, but that anyone in any place who fears God and worships him is acceptable to him. Those who fear him, that's the criteria for receiving this visitation, this grace, this blessing of God. It's a recognition of my place before him and this posture of fearing him. And his mercy is for generation to generation. And then we get this series of past tense verbs. God has done this, God has shown this, God, things that done indicating Mary's confidence that what God is doing is the beginning of the fulfillment of all his promises to his people, which will surely come to pass. So sure is she that he will keep his word that she speaks of these fulfillments as though they've already taken place, even though they're really just beginning. And as we go through these, this series of God's gracious working, I also want you to notice the theme of reversals. That is specifically the humbling of the proud and the exalting of the humble, which is also a key theme in Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2. She says in verse 51, He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has shown strength in the sending of this Messiah, of this child growing in her womb. God has shown his strength and he has scattered the proud. This is a new time. 
It's the time for those who are lowly. It's the time for those who are unrecognized by the world, those who are under-resourced and unprivileged. This is their moment. God is scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones. Worldly power doesn't matter. The richest and most powerful and most influential in this age, they have no say in the work of God for his kingdom. God works not through the power of the world, but through the lowliness and the meekness and the humility of his chosen means and his people. God doesn't visit the world by bringing his child into a palace among a king to be universally recognized. He visits the world by entering the womb of an unknown, obscure, young, unmarried woman named Mary in a small town called Nazareth. And as you know, of course, he'll be born in a very humble way with virtually nobody taking notice. God takes no interest in the mighty and the proud. God indeed brings down the mighty from their thrones. And what? Exalted those of humble estate. The gospel is for the humble. The gospel is for the weak. The gospel is for the broken. Praise God. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Your resources don't save you. Your riches aren't the foundation of your life and future and happiness and blessing. What saves you is God's grace, and he is the one feeding his people. He gives what is needed to the humble, the lowly, the broken who fear him. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And again, the lowly state of God's people are seen there in the fact that Israel is called his servant, not his ruler, not his priest, his servant. He has helped his servant Israel. And this, friends, is the story of the gospel. God lifts up the lowly. He saves the humble. He feeds the poor. Indeed, as Luke continues to unfold, in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he does so by entering the synagogue in Nazareth and reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then after he's finished reading that, he rolls up the scroll and he sits down and all eyes are on him when he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom is here and it's not for the mighty it's not for the politically privileged and powerful. It's for the weak and the poor and the oppressed and the blind and the captive. That's who the good news is for. And then as the gospel of Luke unfolds systematically, this is what we begin to see. Christ the great liberator. Christ the great deliverer of those in captivity. 
bound in chains of sin and brokenness that leads inevitably to death. And it would be by tasting that death on behalf of his own people that those chains would be broken and he would ransom captive Israel by his own life and death and resurrection. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And look at the last phrase in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The baby in Mary's womb is the answer to God's promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. He is the answer to the longings of God's people for a savior and king for generations. And Mary recognizes this. The son that she is carrying is the very presence of God in the world and it is an answer to the generations long yearning and waiting of God's people. The promises to Abraham for his offspring forever. Mary's song ends, and the scene concludes with a simple note in verse 56. I mentioned it earlier, but we'll read it again. And Mary remained with her about three months and then returned to her home. We don't have a window into those three months of time, but just imagine the songs and stories that these women would share with each other as they encouraged each other in their respective roles, remarkable, miraculous roles in God's redeeming plan. You see, Mary sees her place in God's big story. God has chosen her to carry and eventually raise his Messiah, through whom God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be fulfilled, and all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's a story as big as the world itself, and she will play an indispensable part in it. And yet Mary also knows that she herself is in need of the ministry of the Savior that she would bear. She knows that she is just one person among the people of God who would ultimately be rescued by the work of this promised son. In the language of the song, she knew that this child she delivered would soon deliver her. And so, she rejoices both in God's particular grace to her, the part that she would play in the unfolding of God's redemption through Christ, and in God's corporate grace to all his people poured out through the ministry of this Savior who would take up the sins of his people and bear their reproach so that they might partake of his life and blessing forever. What about you? What does your magnificat look like? What song would you sing about the particular grace of God in your life? How has he looked upon your need and shown his favor to you? And do you see your life connected to this bigger story 
that grand unfolding of God's redeeming grace by which he rescues sinners from death and judgment and carries them safely into his eternal kingdom. If you haven't done so, would you trust in him today? Would you confess to God that you are a sinner in need of his grace and name Jesus Christ as your Savior and King? It is not too late to do that. This is the day of salvation. This is the day of his grace. You see, the blessing, the happiness, the well-being, the flourishing of God is freely bestowed on those who, like Mary in Luke 1, believe that the Lord will be faithful to fulfill all that he has spoken. Let's pray together.